Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This episode reenacts scenes of war and includes gunfire. Listener discretion advised. You're tuning into Service. John E. Bestricka, Private First Class. Veteran stories of hunger and war. They joined the service. Remember Pearl Harbor. Remember Pearl Harbor. A production from iHeartRadio. We used to just give these people the food from our biscuits. You ate what you could get and be thankful for what you were getting. I'm your host, Jacqueline Raposo. Men and women of the United States, on this day, more than 16 million young Americans are reviving the 300-year-old American custom of the muster. War has at all times called for the fortitude of women. Meanwhile, the British government has begun to ration food, and Prime Minister Chamberlain on Monday... ...from this island and from our united empire maintained the struggle single-handed for a whole year until we were joined by the military might of Soviet Russia and later by the overwhelming power and resources of the United States of America. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. In the late 1930s, kids going to school or working their family farms or just struggling to find food outlasted the Great Depression only to find themselves barreling into what would become the deadliest conflict in human history. We've moved through 12 of their individual war and food stories this season, But honestly, I still find it a little hard to connect their intimate experiences with what history books tell us of this overwhelmingly big World War II picture. And so, in our final episode this season, we're going to compile some crossovers from our veterans for two guests who can help us better make sense of things. What changed the most when it comes to combat and cuisine? What part did these young men and women play in moving things forward? And where can we most find ourselves in their stories? It's a completely different type of fighting 
were having to go tree to tree to root out the Germans. He had to look for the uniform, what the helmet looked like. Not only that, they had the anti-aircraft Special code word, Piccadilly Circus. That was a code name on the landing craft. You were supposed to stop at Piccadilly Circus. What coordinates to hit? Who was on the coordinate? The infantry of the Marines. You don't want to hit them, you want to get of them. So with them, there are artillery observers on the front lines listening to the captain. What these men are describing is what we call Clausewitzian war. This is Mike Cole. Mike did three tours in Iraq, two as a private contractor and a third as a paramilitary civilian with the Defense Intelligence Agency, while he was also a Coast Guard officer. He's also authored many fantasy books and two history books on ancient combat, while simultaneously working in law enforcement and private intelligence. He doesn't specialize in World War II history, but he has a strong sense of the community our veterans are a part of, plus a jacked-up analytical mind. Clausewitzian war is traditional warfare, as we know it from the Peace of Westphalia, up until, I argue, it's with Mao Zedong. But Clausewitzian warfare is also known as Trinitarian warfare. And Trinitarian warfare is, there's three things you do to win a war. You destroy your enemy's army, you occupy his territory, and you break the will of the military infrastructure to carry on the contest, right? That is how wars have been fought. These are wars of maneuver, where military units at the regimental, battalion, company level are maneuvering against one another, recharging, retreating in set peace battles, having FOs, forward observers, calling in fire. None of that has changed. And was that the same in World War I as well? Was that strategy the same? I think they might have had to use signal flags and marker flags. As a matter of fact, I'm almost sure they did. But the concepts were still basically the same. My point is, is that there isn't that big a difference technologically between what these men were experiencing and what's going on now. The M1 is still my favorite long gun. It's the same M1 that these guys were using, but it's just got fiberglass instead of wood. I carried the 1911. It's my favorite pistol. It's called the 1911 because it's from 1911. 80 is the gun that the Germans had, the best gun of the whole war. All of a sudden, I hear this right over my head. That's the German burp gun. Our submachine gun goes tut, 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 tut. We'd never seen a burp gun before. I said, I want to go with the PT boats. We could go fast, and they could not go fast. The English were the first people to use radar. They were able to keep their fighter planes on the ground until the German planes got close enough. Then the fighter planes took off, and they had full fuel tanks. This is the Battle of Britain with one of the fighters. A machine gun spraying even more bullets, a boat zooming faster, a plane navigating more precisely. These things seemed to make a huge difference for the bodies in the fight. Our being this great arsenal of democracy, does technology really not make a difference on a greater scale? The answer is more complicated. It's rather the interplay of technology and doctrine or the interplay of technology and tactics. I'll give you a perfect case in point. We'll go all the way back to the American Civil War. There's a famous truism in military theory that we are always fighting the last war. And we mean that negatively, right? Napoleonic Wars, which was the main experience that most generals in the American Civil War had, were wars fought largely with smoothbore muskets. A smoothbore musket means that the barrel of the musket does not have rifling, which is to say that I can be aiming straight ahead of me, and when I pull that trigger, that ball could go at a 45-degree angle off to the right. It's got nothing to do with what I'm aiming at. 
By the time the American Civil War was fought, rifling was standard. What you're aiming at, that's where your bullet's going to go. But you're still using Napoleonic tactics designed to deal with these incredibly inaccurate muskets. People lining up, present, arm, and then shooting into a mass. But now you're doing it with an accurate weapon, so the casualties were extreme. And it took way too long for the tactical thinking to match the shift in technology. Trench warfare in the First World War is another great example. The crew served, tripod fired, machine gun was new tech. Those tactics of trench warfare, of going over the top and racing into the enemy's trenches, going into the teeth of that fire, those tactics were designed before you were facing two guys with a tripod mounted machine gun could take out a tire company just sitting there going left and right. There's that amazing scene in the beginning of Saving Private Ryan where the moment that Higgins boat's gangway drops, and then he says, God damn, Bavita, drop the effing rip. And I had no choice. I dropped the rip. And the machine guns came into the boat. And about 14 guys immediately were killed. I'm sure that that occurred. That doctrine did not shift quickly enough to adapt to advances in technology and that that cost lives in extreme cases. Truman found out that the invasion of Japan would have been worse, twice the size of Normandy. So this is when President Truman says, drop the bombs. The Japanese have seen what our atomic bomb can do. They can foresee what it will do Let's in talk the about what we mean when the we say the deadliest the conflict in human history. The United States' use of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima killed 80,000 people instantly. Three days later, 40,000 more were killed by a second bomb on Nagasaki. Imagine how many more were affected by nuclear fallout. There's the Bataan Death March that killed 20,000. The 1.1 million prisoners murdered in Auschwitz alone. Gross estimates of worldwide World War II casualties are counted at 15 million battle deaths, 25 million battle wounds, and 45 million civilian deaths. But those are really gross estimates because reports vary so widely. Field strategy might not have changed during or because of this war. But yes, both technology and doctrine worked against human bodies and cost human lives. And that leads us to the biggest difference between this war and all others. December 7th. 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Three of my classmates and myself were going to Long Beach to enlist. My brother and two of his friends joined the Navy. They were so in demand of nurses that I said to nursing my girlfriend and I, so let's go join the army, and we did. My mother had a very hard time. She had three sons, and we were all in combat. I had seven older brothers. They all served but two. She had seven sons, and they were all in the service. Keen had a lot of kids who went in. 10,020,993. That's how many men were inducted into the armed forces via the draft between 1940 and 1946. Another six million would voluntarily join up, 
plus 350,000 women and millions of others building ships and planes and tanks and guns as fast as they could. This was a massive war. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. 9-11, I was galvanized, I think, like so many other people in the United States. I wanted to get in the fight, and I wanted to get in the fight quickly. But 9-11 failed to galvanize the rush to recruiting stations we might presume it did. Military personnel numbers grew by less than 30,000 between 2001 and 2002, and they've lingered at a total of less than 0.5% of our population over the last decade. Fourth generation warfare is what a lot of people call coin, counterinsurgency warfare. The notion that Mao Zedong really revolutionized in his famous book, Guerrilla Warfare, you have hyperpowers at this point. You're not going to defeat the United States Army. No one is going to defeat the United States Army in a set peace battle, even in 2020. No one. Not China, not Russia, no one in a field battle. There's no point in even trying. We have superior technology. We have superior training. We have not necessarily more numbers, but the right numbers, the infrastructure that's required. What Mao hit on is that the way you beat a hyperpower, you have one goal. In Clausewitzian Trinitarian warfare, it's break their will to fight. But Clausewitz is talking about their military. What Mao pioneered, you break the will of the populace to carry on the contest. How do you feel like World War II shifted a sense of patriotism in the military? Oh my gosh. There's so many things that are different. The first and most obvious is that World War II was an existential crisis, not just for the United States, but for the world. The first great air raid on Paris, which took place today, evidently had two objectives. It is reported this morning that German bombers and flighting planes are again over southeast of the British coastal town. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. The stark contrast between the mission of the Axis powers and the mission of the Allied powers no war since has had that existential stakes. Vietnam or Korea for the United States, like, we lost, so what? What is the impact on people living in the United States? Not much. There's another thing. It's really interesting. If you Google this, you can find videos made during World War II teaching service members how to behave in a British pub. Oh, wait. And incidentally, the beer isn't cold in England, no. They don't like it cold, and they haven't any ice, see? So if you like beer, you better like it warm. What's that? Difference between bitter and mild? The video keeps emphasizing know. you're in a uniform, know, the you're representing the army, mild, don't do these know. things, don't start a fight, don't get drunk. But with the advent of cell phone technology, anytime you screw up in uniform, it's going on Facebook. The military's reacted to that. So we hide our military now. We take those uniforms off. You get in trouble if you're in uniform. No one ever told me that this was the motive, but the general experience I got was they were afraid someone would attack me or hurt me, which is not true. And they were afraid I would do something that would bring discredit on the United States military and it would be caught on a cell phone and put on Facebook or put on other social media. That culture of patriotism, it really did go out. And that's had a real cost. In the United States, we are citizen soldiers, citizen sailors. I always say this when I talk about the military. We are you and you are us. 
we are part of the community. We are not separate from it. That's one of the great strengths of the American military. We'll hear more from Mike in coming seasons as we continue to observe shifting warfare. But in studying World War II alone, the only big picture I can see are humans slaughtering other humans, a very masculine way of pillaging and ruling the world. This is an ongoing conversation, but after centuries of warfare, I can't begin to envision a peaceful world. In the end, I am hoping here, and that really is something that humans have a unique capacity to do, hope. Because without hope, why do anything, right? Then you're just completely nihilist. This is what Obama is constantly pilloried for, but he was absolutely right. It's the audacity of hope. It's one of the greatest things humans do. But I think in this case, the hope is supported by some data. We still fight, but we fight differently. And the impact of the fighting, as horrific as it is, you just can't compare the casualties in Iraq to the American Civil War. You can't. Or the suffering of those people. I don't think it's going to happen in our lifetime or our children's lifetime, but it's going to happen. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire part time or full time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
Personally, I would not be surprised if horse meat became the piece de resistance of American meat diet by the time the war ends. For example, there is a variation of Welsh horse meat pie, which may be prepared in the following manner. They were like extra large Cracker Jack boxes. And in it, they had a dried biscuit. They had a little package of three or four cigarettes, something like jerky. World War II was a big opportunity for the tobacco industry because they ended up sending samples and a lot of the different rations. Gay rations had biscuits in them, had four cigarettes. Morning one had the fig bar in them. And dried eggs, mixed water with it. Welcome back to Service, veteran stories of hunger and war from iHeartRadio. I'm Jacqueline Raposo. What soldiers were eating, it's sort of like each war affects the one that follows it. That's Anastasia Marks de Salcedo. I'm the author of Combat Ready Kitchen, How the U.S. Military Shapes the Way You Eat. Anastasia's book dives deep into military food innovation covering how soldiers ate from the first standing Sumerian armies up through how our troops are eating MREs, meals ready to eat, today. Like Mike, she said placing our veterans' stories firmly within history means remembering that military innovation is like a game of leapfrog. You jump ahead only to become the hurdle for those coming up behind you. There was a brief but disastrous period during the Spanish-American War in the very late 19th century where the U.S. military tried to provide canned meat rations. Those canned meat rations ended up spoiling and it created this huge debacle where the military is basically accused of unintentionally poisoning troops. After that bad experience, they pulled back on the canned meat. So in World War I, they did use the canning technology, but what they put inside it was essentially traditional military rations throughout not just the last hundred years, but millennia. They were dried, preserved foods, hard, dried biscuits that had other ingredients sometimes added for nutrition, dried meat products, and chocolate. That was called the iron ration. It then moved to something called the trench ration, where they introduced something that was a little wetter in terms of the meat product, but it was still just basically a clump of meat in a can. And then they ended up with something called the reserve ration. So that would have been taking you up to World War II. In 1939, as Anastasia explains in her book, three staff in a sleepy Chicago office started to play around with military cuisine. They didn't know anything about food science. They started with just a couple of pots and pans and a budget of only $750. But for the first time in history, the U.S. Army subsistence school at the Chicago Depot of the Quartermaster Corps had made space for a few guys to just play around with what military food could be. So in World War II, you end up having what I like to think of as being the first modern ration in that you can eat it out of hand or heat it and it's actually a meal. This famous sea rat was basically a stew. And the idea was as plain as let's try and get something that looks a little bit more like dinner in the can. So that would be meat and vegetables, meat and potatoes. I think of frank and beans. So it was pretty heavy on the meat and starch. Anything not frozen, we were getting it. Unfrozen canned dates by the barrel load. Corned beef, 75 years. I couldn't stand the smell of it. The food was really lousy at the beginning. <laughs> like mutton? That's awful. Oh, it tastes terrible. I never want to eat mutton again. 
That actually intrigued me because it was the first time I had heard that mutton was used. Certainly spam and corned beef were, and I can understand them getting sick of it. We've heard that the sea rations did improve during the latter years of the war. They finally put hamburgs and baked beans in a can, and they started mixing up better towards the end. But this still wasn't the home canning of the Great Depression years, or civilians' victory gardens. Wartime logistics meant the military had to prioritize differently. Items were chosen for the same reason throughout history. Are they portable? Are they durable? Are they long-lasting and safe and nourishing? And then coming up, you know, a close fourth or fifth, do people like to eat them? So these two guys and their assistant invented the basic sea ration idea, plus helped with the intentionally uninspiring nutritional chocolate D-bar we heard about from D-Day Army veteran John Bastricka. What was the biggest problem facing these budding food nerds? The things that they had invented when they ramped up production and shipped them around the world did not fare very well because really they didn't have mastery of the science of the food or the packaging. The Roosevelt Institute points out that in June of 1939, the roughly 180,000-man U.S. Army ranked 19th in the world, smaller than Portugal's. This makes me laugh because half of my family's from Portugal, and I can feel in my bones how small that country is by comparison. By the end of 1942, there were almost 3 million men in the army alone. By VJ Day in 1945, there were over 12 million active military personnel between branches. 180,000, 12 million. Imagine your office manager feeding a company scaling up that quickly. We were told that what we saw were raisins. If they were actually bugs in the flour that came overseas to us. Now, all those K rations that I got from the sailor, they were soaking wet. I had to throw them away. Here I was with no food except a D-bar. Orange marmalade. It was bitter. In August, the wasps were so bad, we used to take the bayonet and cut the can open, rip it open, and pour it on the ground all around where we were going to eat. They swarmed to there and leave us alone. And I still can't eat it to this day, orange marmalade. The cans, in some cases, would rust and fall apart. The labels would fall off. In local conditions, the food would heat up and spoil inside. Not spoil in the sense of bacterial contamination, but something that happens just with age with food. And then paper packaging throughout World War II was cellophane, which is based on cellulose, which is a plant sugar. Like all plants, it loves water. And so it's not a water barrier. And that meant anything that had been wrapped in cellophane could get soggy. The military had powdered eggs, and I hated those powdered eggs. I didn't smoke cigarettes, so I would take my cigarettes and trade them to the Italians for eggs. They took me down the hill in the restaurant, and they bought me a breakfast meal. And they told me it wasn't powdered eggs, it was real eggs. So that's the first time I had real eggs when I was in England. Got to talking to her, and she could make a darn good breakfast then for us, like an omelet or something like that. What a difference. We would get a shipload coming in of maybe some eggs or whatever. It was a big deal. Providing rations to millions of soldiers took up an incredible amount of space on ships. So they would try to minimize the space and the weight of the food. Plants are 90% water and animals are 70% water. 
One way to do that is to remove most of the water to dehydrate the food. So it wasn't only eggs, it was milk and cheese. And from that, we have to thank for cheese powder. Now, eggs are really technically difficult to preserve and they still don't do a good job of it. It has fat in it and fat goes rancid over time because of a chemical reaction. And then, of course, I would say eggs just have this really special combination of textures when they're fresh that's very hard to replicate with a powdered substitute. For all those reasons, the powdered eggs just have never really been that great. And even now they have prepared eggs in the MREs, but they just don't end up being favorites among men and women either. So dehydrated eggs haven't gotten much better. But one of the idea sparks for this podcast was hearing both an Iraq War Army veteran and my World War II Army veteran grandfather talking about doctoring up the powdered coffee that came in their field rations. In the case of the Iraq captain, powdered cocoa, too. Have they not improved either? During World War II, all these powdered items were mostly just dehydrated. They wouldn't have been able to get that good aroma and taste. We've gotten better at dehydrating things and better at preserving different elements of the food. Nowadays, they really perfected the art of freeze dehydrated beverages. They have these things called microencapsulation, where they encapsulate the fat that would go rancid with maybe a protein so that it doesn't go rancid. And in the case of coffee, they actually are able to encapsulate the volatile oil that makes coffee smell good and taste good inside those little crystals. Taking a final broad historical perspective, can we pinpoint what changed the most about these rations in a way that made a significant difference to the millions of individual humans eating them at the time? The impact on the ration itself over the course of the war, it would have been fairly minimal. They have more to do with the can than the food. They were understanding how food deteriorated better, which allowed them to figure out how to keep it from doing that. But they also developed slightly thicker cans, a latex lining for cans rather than an enamel one that they had done using sort of a wax overlay on top of some of the packaging so that water couldn't penetrate it. The really big impact was afterwards. In 1941, there was a sudden realization that they needed to drastically improve the rations. They took that little laboratory and they infused it with money and expertise. And this is really what is the big bang moment of processed food. So like Mike said about combat, it seems that not much changed during the war for those who served. But the number of those who did made a huge impact on the experience of service for those coming after them. And as we move into the Korean War and the Cold War and Vietnam, we'll hear about things like... They wanted to use plastic. One of the new materials in large part developed by the military during World War II dehydration to preserve food that was used to do the famous space ice cream that astronauts Microwave dehydration, which uses microwave to remove the water molecules. You end up with like a little mini banana that can fit across. But one more thing before we close out. The Navy had the best food of all branches. We did not hear another branch get nominated once for this award. Obviously, having electricity and running water moving from place to place so you can literally make food helps. But Anastasia offered another reason I think anyone who loves to cook can tap into. 
The kitchen on board a ship or a submarine is the heart of the whole endeavor there, and it becomes something that is very important for morale. So there's almost a contest where the cooks are trying to outdo each other in preparing delicious food, including a tradition of making elaborate cakes to cheer people up. And so, an extra nod to those working hard in kitchens from sea to shining sea. At Woodbine, we took a lot of pride in how we did the food, how we presented the food. We were proud of our contribution to what we were doing. Thanks for joining us in this, our first season. Subscribe to Service on your favorite platform to catch up on episodes you might have missed, get special extra episodes as we drop them between seasons, and for updates on when our Korean War season debuts. And thanks for dropping a review while you're there. And don't forget you can find more about this episode and every episode we've aired at servicepodcast.org, plus extra clips and nerdy food history stuff on Instagram and Facebook. We are at Service Podcast. You can drop a note we'll pass on to our guests at our webpage, too. Service is a production from iHeartRadio, with Misty Bodiger as my assisting producer, Gabrielle Collins as our supervising producer, and Christopher Hasiotis as our executive producer. I produced this episode with help from Boston iHeart producer Eric Collins, and thank you to all the artists and engineers who've added creativity and skill to our first season. Thank you for listening, and thank you to those serving and those who have served. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.